This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. If you couldn't tell from how shitty that disclaimer sounded, I am sick. I apologize for any voice cracks and pops and coughs that I can't edit out. Maybe my plague-riddled voice will provide some comedic relief during this one. God knows you're gonna need it. I belong to a subset of the population who believes that some criminals can't be rehabilitated. Some mistakes should not be countered with love and support. Some crimes are so fucked up, brutal, senseless, and disgusting that those who commit them should be put down. If this isn't your first last meal, you already know that. Last week, I told some stories that really made me think about my feelings on capital punishment. Today, I'm going to be talking about cases that will make the abolitionists reconsider their feelings. If you're anti-death penalty, these ones might make you change your mind. I'd hold off on your lunch for the time being and probably arm yourself with something just in case you get spooked. True evil is out there. It's time for some cases of people that undoubtedly deserve the ultimate punishment. Did you really think I'd let you get away without hearing my side of this argument? Chicago is a shithole. We all know that. Some people try to pretend that there aren't dozens of shootings every week, but all it takes is a quick Google search to see the truth. Big cities are cesspools. That's why people who can afford to get away from them often do. I lived in Salt Lake City for a while when I was far below the poverty line. I lived in arguably the worst apartment complex in the whole city. It was horrible. And that's Utah. I can't even imagine living in a big city in another state. The suburbs offer a blanket of safety to those who don't want to move out into the sticks, but as I've mentioned a handful of times before, the 80s was not a good decade to be alive no matter where you lived. Linda Sutton was just 28 years old when she was abducted from the north side of Chicago on May 23, 1981. She was working the streets like a lot of unfortunate souls have to do to survive. She was picked up by a group of men in a van. Her mutilated body would be found ten days later in a field in Villa Park. One of her breasts had been cut off. Police didn't know much, but assumed her killer was a sexual sadist. Nearly a year later, 21-year-old Lorraine Borowski would fail to open up the realtor's office she worked at. Her belongings and shoes were found scattered around the entrance. The police were called right away, but it would take five months for her body to be found. Due to decomposition, a cause of death was unable to be established. On May 29th, Shui Mak was reported missing from Hanover Park. During the trip back from the family's restaurant, the young woman had gotten into an argument with her brother and got out of the car she was riding in. Her skeleton was found on September 30th, 1982, in a housing development. Her clothes had not been removed, but were torn in multiple places. Her cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma to the head and rib fractures. Believe it or not, we're just getting started. So many women were ripped from this earth before their time by the same hands. 
Though they were all from different walks of life, they were all loved, they were all valued, they are all missed. A young woman out working the streets named Angel York was picked up by a customer in a van on June 13, 1982. She was handcuffed before having her left breast sliced open. One of her attackers had forced her to cut her own breast before masturbating into the wound and duct taping it shut. What the actual fuck? Thankfully, she was able to survive. She was dumped on the side of the road and was able to give the police a description of the men who had attacked her. Unfortunately, the description didn't help much, and on August 28th, another young lady of the night was found stabbed and strangled on the bank of the Chicago River. Her left breast had been neatly removed. Her name was Sandra Delaware. It would later come out that a rock had been forced into her mouth and a wine bottle had been put inside of her that caused serious bleeding. The time between attacks was getting shorter as the weeks went on. Less than two weeks after Sandra was discovered, 30-year-old Rose Davis was found in the exact same condition in an alley in Chicago. Her left breast had also been removed. Are you seeing a pattern here? Three days after they found Rose, 42-year-old Carol Pappas went missing from a department store. Carol was the wife of a Chicago Cubs pitcher. She was later found behind a stairway in an apartment complex. She had been stabbed, raped, and strangled. On October 6th, yet another prostitute was found badly injured in the Chicago area. Beverly Washington was just 20 years old when she was found naked and brutalized next to a railroad track. Her left breast had been cut off, and the right one was deeply slashed, but she was still alive. Emergency medical treatment saved her life. Just hours later, in what police thought was an unrelated incident, a drug dealer named Rafael Torado was killed after the phone booth he was in was hit with a barrage of gunfire. Another man he was with was also wounded. Two weeks after these incidents, an unemployed carpenter by the name of Robin Gecht was arrested for Beverly's assault. He was also suspected of attacking Cynthia Smith with a knife before she escaped from his van. Gecht was a strange animal. He had even been accused of molesting his own sister. He was immediately linked to the Ripper killings, but was bailed out on October 26th because they didn't have hard evidence to prove his guilt. The Satanic Panic was a fucking disaster back in the 80s. Like most other things I talk about, there's a sword and scale about it. Episodes 47 and 51 cover it beautifully, if you're interested. Part of what got this case so much attention, aside from the gut-wrenching brutality, was the cult element of it. A hotel manager in Villa Park recalled a group of young men bringing women back to their room and claimed that they were devil worshippers. <sighs> Two members of this group, I'm gonna probably fuck this name up because it's Greek or Lithuanian or some kind of something, Thomas and Andrew Cocorellis left a forwarding address in case any of their mail was delivered to the motel. Police were able to track 23-year-old Thomas down, and his inconsistent answers to questions caused some suspicion. He failed a polygraph test after being brought to the police station, and didn't take long to break under pressure. Thomas would describe a satanic chapel in Robin Gecht's upstairs bedroom, where some truly fucked up shit happened. According to Thomas, women were brought there, 
tortured with knives and ice picks, gang raped, and then sacrificed to Satan by members of their cult. This kind of shit is why the satanic panic was a thing. Some of us dabble in Levian Satanism before we just abandon religion altogether and connect with nature. Some, apparently, sacrifice women after brutalizing them. Not sure how the fuck those two things are the same, but I guess most 80s people were too coked out to bother doing any research into darker culture and just assumed the worst. Thomas claimed that these rituals including severing one or both breasts with a thin wire before cutting pieces off and consuming them. They called it taking communion. What was left was then placed into Gek's trophy box, which at one point contained 15 breasts. What. The. Fuck. So, this was enough for a search warrant. Robin Gecht, Edward Spritzer, and Andrew Cocarellis were also arrested on November 5th. They were locked up and given a bond of $1 million. After getting inside Gecht's apartment, they found the satanic chapel Thomas had mentioned. Also found in his apartment was a rifle that was linked to the death of Raphael Torado. In Andrew's apartment, they found satanic literature. Being a Satanist ain't a crime, but being a sick motherfucker is. Police suspected that the men had murdered 18 women in total. Thomas Cocorellis was charged in Lorraine Borowski's murder on November 12th. Andrew Cocorellis and Edward Spritzer were charged with the rape and murder of Rose Davis on November 14th. While all four men were incarcerated, another body was discovered in a site they'd previously used as a dumping ground. On November 16th, the mangled body of 22-year-old Susan Baker was discovered and had the police worried that they hadn't caught all of the men responsible for the Ripper slayings. Her death was later linked to her lifestyle. She was a drug user and a prostitute and had numerous arrests in a handful of states. Still didn't deserve what happened to her, but that's a risk you take when you live dangerously. Robin Gecht was looking at multiple charges of attempted murder, rape, and aggravated battery. On March 2, 1983, he was found competent to stand trial. Like an idiot, he took the stand in his own defense and confessed to the attack on Beverly Washington. He was found guilty on all counts and given, wait for it, 120 years for all that chaos. If you ask me, being the ringleader of a murderous cult should earn someone a date with the needle. Oh, and one other little bit of information. This sick bastard had previously worked as a subcontractor for John Wayne Gacy. Thomas Cocorellis was convicted of Lorraine Borowski's murder and given 70 years. He was later found guilty in Linda Sutton's case as well. Andrew Cocorellis wrote a statement that was later read to the jury in his trial where he confessed to the murder of Rose Davis, claiming that he had stabbed the woman after cruising around looking for a victim. He was convicted and sentenced to death on March 18, 1985. Edward Spritzer pled guilty to the murders of Rose Davis, Sandra Delaware, Shui Mock, and Raphael Torado, and was handed a life sentence for each count. He received additional time for a handful of other charges, including rape, deviant sexual assault, and attempted murder. 
He was later convicted of murdering Linda Sutton and was given a death sentence on March 20, 1986. This sentence would be commuted to life in 2003. God damn, that was a lot. I don't understand why such light sentences were given to these monsters. I truly don't. I'd say, what the fuck, Colorado, but even that doesn't convey my disgust. These four men terrorized the Chicago area for a relatively short time, but the damage they did was inconceivable. So many innocent lives taken in the name of Satan. This is Illinois, though. Chicago, to be more specific. A place with a crime rate that's out of control. But, uh, no more death penalty. What did we expect? Andrew Cocorellis was executed by lethal injection on March 17, 1999. He was the last person to be put down in the state of Illinois, and the only one of the Ripper crew to be executed for his role in the crimes. Illinois just doesn't know shit about how to deal with crime, I guess. His last words were, To the Borowski family, I am truly sorry for your loss. I mean this sincerely. Andrew also decided to use his final statement to quote the Bible, the not-satanic Bible, because consistency. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He declined a last meal. It was as if he deliberately disfigured her, causing the utmost pain, distress, and degradation. The injuries were not the result of one sudden eruption of violence. They must have been caused over a long period and were so extensive and so terrible that the defendant must have deliberately and systematically tortured the girl. I don't know about any of you, but I am sick in the head. Always have been. True crime has always fascinated me. We've all heard horror stories like that of Junko Furuta. Poor girl suffered for more than a month for no reason other than her captor's amusement. Sylvia Likens is another one. The movie An American Crime fucked me up when I was younger. Andre Chikatilo's crimes stand out to me just due to the sheer brutality of them. Tina Talbot's story also haunts the fuck out of me even though she made it out with her life. The next one I'm going to tell you about is one that you may be familiar with. It's one that I read about when I was a teenager that's always stuck with me. Maybe it's part of why my get-the-fuck-out-of-here sense is so strong. Kelly Ann Bates was born in Manchester, England on May 18, 1978. Finding anything on her early life is proving to be difficult, but what I can tell you is that she was strong and athletic. She had big dreams of becoming a teacher and was in college. Kellyanne also worked at a graphics firm. In the handful of pictures I've seen, she looks like a genuinely happy person. Someone who's fun to be around that brightens up the world around them. After meeting a man named James Smith, all of that would change. Smith was born in 1948. A very proud, very straight-laced guy, his violence toward women was not something he hid very easily. He was married to his first wife for 10 years before she finally left him due to his abusive tendencies. Between 1980 and 1982, he was in a relationship with a 20-year-old woman named Tina Watson. Smith used her as a punching bag, even beating her while she was pregnant with their child. 
He would kick her and hit her over the head with heavy objects. Over the course of this relationship, Smith brutalized her, even attempting to drown her during a bath. Tina was able to leave him, thank God. After Tina escaped, Smith found himself with a 15-year-old girl named Wendy Mottershead. To go along with the statutory rape, Smith was physically violent toward her as well. At one point, he held her head underwater in the kitchen sink to try to drown her. This is one hell of a pattern we're seeing here. Smith met Kellyanne in 1993, when she was just 14 years old. She had been babysitting for some friends, and Smith did the chivalrous thing of walking her home to make sure she was safe. This is how the grooming began. It would go on for two years before Kellyanne's parents, Margaret and Thomas, even knew about Smith. They were shocked to find out how much older he was. In a 2015 interview, Margaret told Mail Online, The first time I met him, he swaggered down the stairs and it made the hairs stand up on the back of my neck. I vividly recall seeing our bread knife in the kitchen and wanting to pick it up and stab him in the back. It was a bizarre thought. I would never normally think of anything so violent, and now I wonder whether it was some sort of sixth sense. I wish you'd slice that bastard open with a bread knife when you had the chance, Margaret. I really fucking do. Kellyanne would come home with serious bruises all over her. One night she came home and her face was black and blue. Another time her hand was bruised. I suspected Smith was hitting her, but Kellyanne denied it. After meeting Smith, she became very quiet and withdrawn. Her hygiene suffered and she just lay on the couch in total silence. Sounds like a classic case of depression. Probably the result of being treated so poorly. Margaret was a smart woman and didn't hesitate to call social services, but because Kellyanne was 16, there was nothing they could do. Just think about that for a second. In November of 1995, Kellyanne moved in with Smith. She kept somewhat frequent contact with her parents for a while through phone calls and letters, but never visited in person. Over time, the phone calls dwindled down to once in a while. Christmas and birthday cards were only signed by Smith, never by Kellyanne. Because she was a legal adult, nothing could be done by the police or social services to check on her. As a parent, I can't even imagine this heartache. Wanting nothing more than for your child to be okay, but not being able to do a damn thing about it, even though you know they're in distress. Jesus Christ. They wanted to show up to the house and check on Kellyanne, but worried that doing so would cause Smith to get angry and take it out on their daughter. My heart hurts for these people. April 16th of 1996 was the day that everything finally came to the surface. Smith couldn't hide his brutality anymore. It was on this day that he walked to a police station and told them Kellyanne had drowned in the bath after they'd been in a fight. His story was that they were going at it when she swallowed water and died. When the police came and got a look at her body, it was immediately clear that this wasn't an accident. Her blood was in every room of the house and her autopsy showed more than 150 separate injuries that had been inflicted over a very long time. For four weeks leading up to her death, Kellyanne had been tortured. That's putting it lightly. 
She'd been starved for weeks and hadn't been given any water for a few days leading up to her death. Cigarette burns were all over her, as well as a mark on her thigh from being burned with an iron. Boiling water had been poured on her buttocks and feet. Her arm was fractured. She'd been stabbed all over her body with many different objects, including scissors, forks, and knives. They even found stab wounds on the inside of her mouth. Holy shit, I need to take a breather. It only gets worse from here. Ligature marks on her neck showed that she'd been kept tied up in the house. It was also evident that she'd been tied to a radiator with her own hair. During those last four weeks, Kellyanne's kneecaps had been crushed to prevent her from escaping. Her hands were injured in a similar way. Smith had caused severe damage to her nose, mouth, lips, ears, and genitals. Some wounds had been caused by pruning shears and a spade. Both of Kellyanne's eyes had been gouged out while she was alive. This had occurred not less than five days and not more than three weeks before her death. It was also determined that her empty eye sockets had been stabbed. To go along with this, she had been partially scalped. I honestly do not know how this poor girl had the will to fight that long. Death would have been a welcome sight for me in that situation. Kellyanne's cause of death was drowning, but it was determined that she had been beaten with a showerhead immediately before her death. Her mother Margaret said, People called him an animal, but an animal wouldn't do that to another animal. He is a very evil man. I think about how much pain she must have been in. How she must have thought we didn't love her because we didn't save her. During his trial, Smith claimed that Kellyanne brought the abuse on herself by winding him up. Apparently, she taunted him about his dead mother. Smith even pulled the she asked for it card. I don't care how masochistic you are, there is no one walking this earth that would ask for the brutality Kellyanne received. He also tried saying that Kellyanne purposely hurt herself to make it look worse than it actually was. Is your blood boiling yet? The evidence at trial was so horrific that every member of the jury accepted professional counseling afterward. It only took them an hour to find Smith guilty. James Patterson Smith was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 20 years. Welcome to the UK. The judge told him directly, you are an abuser of women and I intend, so far as it is in my power, that you will abuse no more. Smith applied for parole this year, 2023, but it was denied. Here in the States, a crime like this will get you killed, either by the state or at the hands of another prisoner. Crimes like this are why I'm in favor of the death penalty. Yeah, rotting away in prison sucks, but perpetrators of this kind of abuse deserve to die the same way they killed. You ain't gonna change my mind on that. Men aren't the only ones wreaking havoc on our society. As I've mentioned before, women aren't usually out gutting strangers and blowing away large groups of people with a rifle. They usually target those close to them a lover, a relative, or in the most disturbing cases, their own child. The victim in this next case was failed by so many people. 
Motherhood flips a switch in most of us. Becoming a mom saved my life in a lot of ways. I didn't get to meet my first child or even learn if they were a boy or girl, but I credit that baby with saving my life. When I found out I was pregnant, I gained a reason to live. Over the years, I've realized how much I'm willing to sacrifice for my kids. I'd kill and die for them. But some mothers can't even be bothered to keep their children out of harm's way. Devontae Williams was born in Tarrant County, Texas on June 13, 1995, four months premature. He had developmental disabilities. CPS was called on his mother, Marcella Williams, when Devontae was just two months old. It was alleged that she was not keeping a proper eye on her baby. They monitored the home for just six months before closing the case. Holy hell, that is a rough start. Marcella eventually found herself in a relationship with a woman named Lisa Coleman. After learning this woman's history, I find myself struggling to understand why anyone would want a relationship with her. Coleman's mother was raped by her stepdad, which resulted in a pregnancy. For whatever reason, she kept the baby, and on October 6, 1975, baby Lisa entered this world. As a child, her uncle beat her with an extension cord. She was later bounced around foster homes, as most abused children are. A child abuse expert would later evaluate Coleman and discover that she had been sexually abused as a toddler by her foster parents. Her biological mother nicknamed her Pig and rarely had contact with her while she was in foster care. Why the fuck would you keep a child that you clearly don't want? Adoption is a much better option than abuse. Holy shit. Coleman was stabbed by her cousin as a preteen, and when she got a little older, a different relative would start providing her with drugs and alcohol. She dropped out of school in 10th grade and had a baby at 16. In her early adulthood, she served some prison time for burglary and possession with intent to deliver a controlled substance. What a fucking mess. I know shitty circumstances don't always produce shitty people, but this time they did. Marcella Williams had a chance to get out before things went to hell, and she didn't. In 1999, Devontae and his one-year-old sister were removed from their home due to concerns of abuse. CPS investigated the family again and found that Devontae had thinning hair, swelling on his lip and penis, and bruises on his back. Okay, so my son is two, and always has bumps and bruises. He's a handful. No one warned me about having a little boy, always running around at top speed and climbing on shit. So I'm used to seeing some minor little things on his arms and legs. Not on the back, and definitely not on his junk. What the fuck? That is an instant red flag. CPS found that Coleman had abused the toddler, so he and his sister were put into foster care. Marcella Williams got her kids back after a year. She agreed to stay away from Coleman and was given custody based on this. A third child was born into their home in November of 2000. In October of 2002, Devontae was in first grade. Someone at his school must have noticed something weird because CPS got another call, this time due to Devontae being physically and medically neglected. When they came to check on the kids, they all denied being abused. Around this time, Coleman and Williams had been keeping Devontae away from the public eye. 
He was kept out of school and never taken to the doctor. The couple went so far as to convince the school district that they had moved away. Every time CPS came to the house to check on the family, it appeared as though no one was home. This is a classic case of the state failing to protect a vulnerable child. I get that manipulative adults can cheat the system and get away, but I've had my own encounters with child services. One day I'll tell you why. It's a hell of a story. Don't jump to any conclusions, because you will be wrong, but yeah. In my experience, they don't leave you the fuck alone. There is no getting away from them unless they're done with you. How they let this little boy fall through the cracks is just... What the fuck? On July 26, 2004, a 911 call was placed from their home in Arlington, Texas. Williams had called to report that Devante had stopped breathing. The dispatcher tried to give CPR instructions, but Williams disconnected the call. Emergency services arrived and were greeted by Coleman, who told them that little Devante had stopped breathing just minutes before. It was clear to the paramedics that rigor mortis had already set in and Devante had been dead for at least several hours. He was found wearing only a diaper. When he was discovered, nine-year-old Devante weighed only 35 pounds. I am speechless. My two-year-old son weighs about that much. Granted, he's beefy as fuck and really tall for his age, but holy hell. This family had no financial issues preventing them from feeding their kids. In fact, they had a freezer full of meat and ice cream and a pantry stocked with all kinds of food. Everyone else in the family ate, just not Devante. The little boy was also covered in scars and infected wounds. His wrists and legs had wounds from being bound with extension cords. He had a tear in his lip as well as one on his ear. Police found a golf club in the house with blood stains on it. This poor baby. God damn. The medical examiner determined that Devante's cause of death was malnutrition and pneumonia, but physical abuse was evident. Williams and Coleman were charged with injury to a child and held on a $200,000 bond. Devante's two sisters were put into foster care after his death. Both girls appeared to be well-fed and healthy. The charges against the women were eventually upgraded to capital murder. Williams took a plea deal and walked away with a life sentence. She will be eligible for parole in 2044. Coleman would not accept a plea deal. She went to trial for capital murder. The state had to prove that there was an aggravating circumstance, such as a second crime she committed during the murder. Because Devante had been tied up and locked in a pantry, they were able to argue that she had kidnapped him. It was abundantly clear that Devante did not live in a loving home. There was evidence of frequent beatings and restraint. Coleman's defense attorney. Holy fucking shit. I understand that they have a job to do, and everyone deserves to have someone fighting on their side. But this guy's defense strategy made me sick. He argued that Devante was small because he was born prematurely, and that he sometimes had to be restrained because of his hyperactive behavior. According to him, the boy died as a result of poor parenting, not murder. Seems to me like they took fine care of the other two kids. Devante was a target, maybe due to his disabilities, 
may be due to the fact that he was a boy. I'm not Lisa Coleman, and I can't tell you why, but it is clear that they treated him differently, and that's what matters here. Testimony from the medical examiner was harrowing. He claimed that Devante was so badly bruised and scarred that he initially thought blunt trauma was the cause of death. Devante was not adequately fed, and his diet was so protein deficient that his body broke down its own fat and muscle. It was due to this lack of protein that the little boy's wounds didn't heal properly. Very little fat was found around his heart, which is apparently unusual in children. Devante's eight-year-old sister, Destiny, testified for the state and said that Lisa Coleman lived in the house with them, despite CPS saying she wasn't allowed to. Destiny also told the jury that Coleman would tie Devante up with extension cords. Witnesses for the defense included a doctor who claimed Devante had died from choking on his own vomit, not from malnutrition. Where the fuck does this doctor buy drugs from? Because they are clearly on some good shit. A nine-year-old should weigh more than 35 pounds. A psychologist had evaluated Devante in 1999 and said he had speech problems and other developmental delays which needed to be combated with a stable home environment. Devante's first grade teacher testified that he seemed capable of learning, but that he was easily distracted and had some behavioral problems. I'm not an expert on child abuse, or parenting, or anything really, aside from how to function on no sleep. But I can tell you right now that this isn't just a case of bad parenting. This is actual abuse. Even shitty, clueless parents provide their children with love and have enough sense to keep them out of harm's way. Coleman's defense attorney fought like hell to get the death penalty off the table, claiming that she had mental issues stemming from the illicit nature of her conception. That, combined with the substance abuse and physical attacks she suffered that landed her in foster care, should be enough of a mitigating circumstance to spare her life, in this defense attorney's eyes anyway. I know I've said a million times that someone's shitty upbringing isn't an excuse for them to rain chaos down on the world. Plenty of people drag themselves out of hell and make something positive out of their life. When the poor me card didn't work and Coleman was given a death sentence, the attorneys representing her during her appeals went a totally different route. One of them claimed that the only reason she was given a death sentence was because she was being targeted for being a black lesbian. Never mind the fact that she neglected and abused the fuck out of a little disabled boy and ended up killing him in the process. Let's play the I'm oppressed card. God damn. On September 16, 2014, the U.S. Court of Appeals rejected the defense attorney's argument against the kidnapping charge. Yeah. These people were trying to claim that the original defense attorneys failed to investigate evidence that would disprove Devante had been kidnapped. Child abuse is a felony, last time I checked. Wouldn't capital murder be upgraded for that as well? I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. But I feel that this dumb bitch got what was coming to her. The Supreme Court decided not to issue a ruling in the case and just let the cards fall. Lisa Ann Coleman was executed by lethal injection on September 17, 2014. She only sat on death row for about eight years before meeting her end with the help of some pentobarbital. Texas doesn't fuck around, I guess. 
After Devante and several other children died, the governor's office opened an investigation into how CPS handled child maltreatment allegations. A CPS spokesperson said that the Williams family had been investigated many times and that they moved frequently in order to avoid CPS. They apparently lost track of the family in 2002. What I'm wondering is, why didn't they just keep the kids in foster care? This system is truly broken. Abused kids slip through the cracks while parents who are breaking their backs to provide good lives for their kids are harassed by the state. Coleman's last words were, I'm alright, tell them I finished strong, God is good. Texas doesn't do last meal requests anymore, so she was served the same thing as the other prisoners. A fried pork chop, mac and cheese, green beans, navy beans, bread, carrots, and pineapple orange cake, with a choice of tea, water, or punch to drink. Rest in peace, Devante. The smile I'm seeing in your pictures could light up a room. You did not deserve the difficult life you were given. Gang violence isn't something I've spent much time on in this podcast. Maybe that's because I live in a fantasy world called Utah where that shit isn't really a problem. I mean, it exists here, but not anywhere near the levels of other places. When someone says gang violence, my mind instantly goes to a drive-by shooting. But this next case makes me really glad I live behind the shelter of the Zion Curtain. On June 24, 1993, Peter Cantu called a meeting with his fellow gang members to initiate someone new. Four other members, along with two brothers of these men, met Cantu and began this initiation. I'm not going to name them right now, as it'll just make everything confusing. Peter Cantu is the monster of the story. That's all you really need to know. The new guy had to fight each member of the gang for five to ten minutes. After the fights were over, he was welcomed in. They celebrated by drinking some beer before heading to some nearby railroad tracks. I've mentioned before that I was a dumb teenager. I did some truly fucking stupid shit when I was young. But not everyone who finds themselves in scary situations can blame themselves for what happens. Two friends, 14-year-old Jennifer Ertman and 16-year-old Elizabeth Pena, were out visiting a friend that night. They were both average teenage girls. Despite their age difference, both the girls' parents thought that their friendship was a good idea. Elizabeth's father saw Jennifer as a good influence on his daughter, who had just cleaned up her act after a rebellious streak. On the way home, the girls realized that they were going to be late and decided to take a shortcut across the railroad tracks. This is where they encountered two men, Roman and Frank. They were brothers. One was a member of the gang, while the other was just along for the ride. The girls were able to pass by them with no incident. As Jennifer and Elizabeth got further along their journey, one of the other gang members grabbed Elizabeth and dragged her down a hill. She screamed for help. Jennifer tried to go after her but was caught by Cantu and dragged down the same hill. Roman and Frank decided at this point that they were going to leave. Cantu asked if they wanted to get some, but Roman said that he did not rape or kill girls. There is honor among some thieves, I guess. It would come out in later statements from the other gang members that these two teenage girls suffered immensely. Both were gang raped. 
vaginally, orally, and anally for over an hour. During all this, the 14-year-old brother of another gang member stood by and watched. Cantu offered to let him have some time with the girls as well, but from what I can tell, he didn't participate. Cantu told the young man, we're gonna have to kill them. After everyone was finished, the girls were taken out into the woods. They were kicked and beaten so badly that their teeth were knocked out. Hair was pulled out. Their ribs were broken. A nylon belt had been pulled so tightly around Jennifer's neck that it snapped. Elizabeth was strangled with shoelaces. At one point, Cantu kicked Elizabeth in the face with steel toe boots. To ensure the girls were dead, everyone took turns stomping on their necks. All because they took a shortcut on the way home from a friend's house. Later that night, the gang met back up at Cantu's house and bragged to Cantu's older brother and sister-in-law about what they had done in graphic detail. After the girls had been murdered, they had been robbed of what cash and jewelry they had on them. Cantu passed this out to everyone at his house. I'm not sure what clicked in her mind, but Christina Cantu, Peter's sister-in-law, convinced her husband to report what had happened to the police. It took a while for the bodies to be discovered, and dental records had to be used to identify them because the decomposition was so bad. Thankfully, enough tissue had remained that the medical examiner was able to determine the cause of death was trauma to the neck consistent with strangulation. Everyone who participated in this atrocity was eventually arrested, and most of the stolen jewelry was recovered. Cantu and several others confessed to the crime as well. During the trial, witnesses testified that Cantu was known to be violent. He had once stolen a bicycle from an eight-year-old and then turned it in to get the reward for it. He threatened several different people, including a police officer. And he was a problem at school. Are we really surprised? He was headed down a dark path. It was inevitable. In total, this case ended in five death sentences. One gang member was executed for this crime in July of 2006, another in August of 2008. In 2005, the Supreme Court ruled that executing people for crimes they committed before they were 18 was unconstitutional, so the two younger men had their sentences commuted to life with parole. The 14-year-old brother I mentioned was convicted of aggravated sexual assault and given 40 years. I guess he did participate. What a fucking shame. Peter Anthony Cantu was executed by lethal injection on August 17, 2010, at the age of 35. He was only 18 at the time of the crime. Some people are just destined to fuck their lives up, I guess. What a waste. Two innocent girls brutalized for the satisfaction of a group of thugs. No amount of prison time can rehabilitate people like this. A death sentence was most definitely deserved. Three of the gang members were later implicated in the 1993 murder of Patricia Lopez, but none of them were charged as they were already on death row. Cantu offered no last words. His last meal was enchiladas, fajitas, and a cinnamon bun. So there it is, a handful of cases that strengthen my belief in capital punishment. 
Some people do not deserve the oxygen they breathe. Some crimes are just so fucked up that they deserve to be handled with a quick drop and a sudden stop. Or four bullets to the heart. Or a syringe full of poison. In all honesty, I believe that those who are found guilty beyond any doubt should die the same way that they killed. Let them feel the same pain they inflicted. The death penalty is a necessary evil. It needs reform. It needs to be applied equally to everyone. We shouldn't use race as a reason to fry people, and we shouldn't let women walk away with their lives simply because they have a vagina. Assholes come in all shapes, sizes, colors, and creeds. Justice should be blind, but this isn't a perfect world. If you enjoyed this episode, whether you're pro-death penalty or not, tell a friend. Share my shit all over the internet. I'm available on Rumble, as well as most places you can get podcasts. You can also get me on Instagram and Twitter, at LastMealPod. I'm open to case suggestions, so if you know of any death penalty cases that aren't blown up in the media, shoot me a message. I usually don't bite. I'm gonna end this one with a different quote than usual. One that I'm sure you've heard a million times before. It fits, though. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. See you next time.